following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. So um, I'm currently rereading Frank Herbert's Dune, so worms have been on my mind. Uh, for those not familiar with the groundbreaking 1965 science fiction novel, giant worms feature prominently and prove to be the key to sustaining life on the desert planet Arrakis. Australia might not be Arrakis, but we certainly have one of the most extreme climates on the planet, exacerbated by a questionable stewardship of nature and modern arable farming practices, learning and relearning to work with our soil's benefactors to protect and preserve our vital soil carbon sponge, is an essential part of our stewardship over this land. For nature, and for us in turn to thrive, we must lovingly feed the earth that feeds us. And much of that begins in the soil with the food we throw away and the blind, humble worm. So this morning joining us, we have Sid Riley, who's a vermiculturist, also known as a worm farmer, who's the managing director of Global Worming. Welcome to the show, Sid. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on your show today. You're most welcome. So, Sid, um, you have an interesting background. It didn't start with worms. I understand you've got a bit of a, a financial data background. and Yeah, you, you... I guess I call myself the world's first vermi economist because my background vermi is economist, I'm I'm an economist as a background, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So, like, I studied at university here in Canberra, but from the time I was sort of quite young, I always was been very keen on worms and really thought that they could play a much greater role in our modern society. And your um, transition into worm farming, like was that a gradual thing or is that... Uh... Most definitely because yeah. quite often in business you need to have the money to back you up. Mm -hmm. So I spent a long time working in various jobs, jobs that I loved doing and jobs that I felt were really important. And going part-time worm farming, part-time business allowed me to sort of develop the business and also get a really good feel about how this should be done because there wasn't a whole lot of people I could learn off and I had mm. to test certain things about what's the best way to do this. Right. And are you the sort of the only worm farmer in Canberra or is this a fairly new venture for ACT? It's been going on for quite a while, I guess. Mm -hmm. I've been established now since about 2004 mm -hmm. and I've been doing it full time since about 2010. There was another operator in Canberra and at one stage we probably had more operators in Canberra than the rest of Australia combined. So he's since <laughs> retired and he was a really good ally too because we could really bounce ideas off each other because, as I mentioned, there's not a whole lot of people we've been able to learn off when it comes to this this chosen profession. Yeah. So I'm just imagining our listeners are thinking worm farms. Is that like like worms out there in the fields tilling away? Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps you could give us a little bit of um, information and background about what worm farming is and, yeah. and how it works. I'm sure there's a lot of imagination going wild right now out there, what yeah, that could most, look like. Yeah, most definitely. There's, there's many aspects to the business. Uh, one is getting the food waste first. Next one is transporting it to the worms. And then the third part is the worm, worm farming side, which includes things such as worm husbandry, which is a term that I love using. Yeah. So it took me a long while to get the worm farm side right because there wasn't a whole lot of people anywhere in the world that were using food waste to feed to worms to get them to recycle it into the beautiful castings. So it took a while to develop the farming system, something that was modular and expandable. Uh, my worm farms look like raised garden beds, mm -hmm. so it's a really good home base for the worms. Mm -hmm. It means that they can be very happy there. It helps regulate the temperature, but it's modular in terms of there's frames that mm -hmm. lock together with pins, um, and then we have panels that line those, mm -hmm. and then we have the worm farm that's inside that. So it mm -hmm. forms a really good solid structure, 
it also means that you can expand the farm if you need to. Mm. So we've got some wound farms that are 25 metres long and 2.4 metres wide. Um, but compared to a lot of schools where we also lease worm farms, which typically are about nine metres long and 1.2 metres wide. So that's the worm farm site, but it's all about site. It's about trying to get the, the home base of the worm right. So mm-hmm. getting a beautiful ecosystem where they're going to be happy. And then from there, it's just putting the food scraps on top and letting the worms do the work. Right. Now, I was really surprised when I was doing some research for the show that worms eat an awful lot. Like, you've got to keep them well fed. It's not just throwing your compost in there and leaving them alone. You've got yeah, to make sure they've got enough to eat. Most certainly, and also making sure the conditions are right. That's yeah. the other really important things. But you hear and you read that worms will consume their body weight a day. I tend to be a lot more conservative and work yeah. off about half their body weight a day. So you don't want fat worms? <laughs> you don't necessarily, but fat worms are a good sign that they're breeding up and they're starting to populate a new farm. So worms have an amazing ability where they won't overpopulate and they won't overfeed. Okay. So it's something that's a bit different to humanity, I think, yeah, in yeah. that respect. <laughs> so if all of a sudden you cut off the food supply of the worms, they'll all reduce in size together. Oh, okay. And if you put a few worms in a new farm where there's lots of food, they'll quickly get quite large and breed up very rapidly. So, you know, the size of your worm and seeing how they behave is a real indication. So it's your gauge for yeah, a really happy gauge. farm. Yes. Yeah. And the other one's eggs. Are they sort of a, a collective response to their environments? They all seem to respond the same way at the same time? I guess it comes down to who you talk to. If you look at the academics about it, people would say no. But from my observation over a long time, I'm very convinced there's a very strong communication network between the worms. Mm -hmm. And the things I see just surprise me every week. Mm. So I've rolled up to some worm farms one evening with wheelie bins full of food. It's too late to feed them, put the wheelie bins alongside the farm. The very next morning, there'll be worms around the rim of that wheelie bin. Mm. And similarly, when worms are stressed or really happy, they'll congregate in a ball and that ball will look after each other. So just say it's really extreme temperature, 40, 45 mm-hmm. degrees, the worms will look after each other by forming a ball and taking it in turns of being on the outside, being exposed to those mm-hmm. extremes and then moving in where they can recover. So worms definitely communicate. Um, and another example is when their favourite food might be in a certain part of the farm and next thing you know, they're all there. So. Yeah, they've got a brain. They've got five hearts, so I'm sure they've got a very strong emotional network as well. Mm, so the fact that they have a brain and they have five hearts, I've also heard they can feel pain? I I guess they can, yeah. I guess they've got a network, a uh, neurological network. Uh, the most obvious example is when they're exposed to light. Mm. Worms are incredibly sensitive to light. Their whole body is almost like an eye, and they'll very quickly move mm. away from it. And you'll see that when you put a worm in your farm and how stressed that they can become. Hmm. So um, with this idea that they have five hearts and a brain and they can feel pain, this would support what you've experienced, like what you've observed with their behaviour, like they're actually community-centric Most definitely, beings, yes, you know? they're, yes. They're very aware of um, their community's well-being. Yes, most definitely. And how to like, protect and preserve their community. Yeah, definitely. And that's if there's any sort of variations in soil temperature and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other big thing is vibrations. They mm. really don't like vibrations. And that's a technique that we use for trying to separate worms mm-hmm. from the castings, mm-hmm. which is a, a fun... Are they sensitive to sound vibration as well? Or is it just um, sort of physical vibration? I with... don't know about that one. Mm-hmm. We use physical vibration. Mm-hmm. So any sort of vibration on the surface will make them move away 
away from it, mm. which is a bit different to sort of burrowing earthworms, mm. which sort of think that they're going to get flooded by rain, yeah. so they come more to the surface. But, but the composting worms tend to behave differently and move yeah. away from the sound. Yeah. And this is a thing that I didn't realise until I started researching to interview you today. Um, there's different types of worms in the compost. So they're not the earthworms that we're seeing in our garden. They're actually another type of worm entirely. Yeah, most definitely. There's over 2,500 varieties of worms around the world. Uh, the ones that we use for composting, which is sort of more the food waste management, tend to be the small composting worms. They're not very good at burrowing. They prefer to live in a really good base, which doesn't have too much variation in temperature. In Australia, there tends to be four main composting worms that are used. We use the red wrigglers, the Indian blues and the tiger worms. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's another one that's commonly used called the African Nightcrawler, but they're called that a for name. a reason. That's good names for worms. Yeah, they're all superhero names. Yeah, yeah. I love talking to kids about them, but every worm's a superhero. But the African Nightcrawler don't really like much variation in temperature, so they don't really go very well in the Canberra environment. And there's many stories of people that spend a lot of money populating a farm with African Nightcrawlers, and the next day they've all gone. Yeah. <laughs> Crawl like the other worm. Yeah, they've yeah. crawled to my banner. So the, the worms that we use are very much more resilient, and they're mm -hmm. very much used to the Canberra climate. The earthworms, which you see all over the world, Australia has some of the most interesting. The, yeah. the biggest earthworm in the world is in Australia, in the Gippsland. So we are a rackers, aren't we? <laughs> For everything, yeah. <laughs> Tried, I'm, sure, I'm sure it probably does spit poison and venom too, you know, in Australia. But no, How no, big is that one in, in Gippsland? It gets up to three metres long, three as metres. thick as your thumb, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's quite incredible, yeah. And the eggs are quite large as well. But even here in Canberra, when I was developing my business, I used to live in Ainsley, in one of the old homes there that had like the old market garden in the background and I was establishing worm farms out of town as well as sort of learning about it in Canberra as well and I used to get uh, horse manure from uh, stables mm -hmm. and because horses are wormed a lot that's really bad for worm population so I used to sit on shade cloth been sitting there for a few weeks and one day I went to move it and I saw these heads ducking down and at first I thought they were snakes because oh. they were so large. Oh. I carefully pulled out the pitchfork and dug them up. And I've got a photo of three worms that are all at least 75 centimetres long handing off my hand. Wow. And that's here in Canberra. And those worms stretched out to over a metre. Yeah. So these giant earthworms live everywhere. Native worms. Native worms, yeah. most definitely, yep. And that's what I find so fascinating about them because mm. no one can tell you how old these worms are. Yeah. It could be 30, 40 years old. We don't really know. We know that in the laboratory situation, worms live up to 10 years. But these fascinating native worms that we have too, which love the composting worm because yeah. they love to come and consume the bottom of the worm pump, what's coming out of it. But you know, I think they're incredibly fascinating. Yeah, they're amazing. And apparently um, worms breathe through their entire body, right? So they don't have lungs. That's so right, It's their yes. skin that yes, allows right. them to breathe. Exactly. And that's where movement's so important too because it's a combination of having air pockets as well as the movement which enable them to breathe. But again... So this is where you have to aerate your compost? Yeah, it's an aerobic process. So it's, it's where it's where it's quite different to hot composting and where you don't really want to turn things too much because mm. the very process of turning it can actually damage the worms. So mm. it's about trying to keep those conditions aerobic, which means just keeping air within mm. that composting process. Well, that's mm. interesting. I have a, a compost, a tumbler-style compost at home from a mm -hmm. company in Byron Bay. Oh, yep. yep. And uh, they recommend turning it every day. So maybe I've been doing the wrong thing. Maybe I've been traumatising my worms without knowing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, those compost tumblers... 
I mean, you can tumble them as much as you but like. They're never going to work unless they've got life forms in there. Yeah. And the best life forms in there is not necessarily mm. worms. It's the soil microbes. Mm. So even a handful of soil thrown into your tumbler is going to make it work a lot better. Mm-hmm. But again... I think it's what comes down to natural processes versus engineered processes. Mm. And it's natural for worm farming and composting to be connected to the ground because mm. that's where the microbes live. That's what helps regulate the temperature. Mm. So those compost tumblers are pretty good, but mm. you see a lot of them yeah. <laughs> out of tinies <laughs> for free. <laughs> and it was one of those things where, you know, you look at the different types of composting and then if you've got vermin and various other things that are you know, problematic with an exposed compost pile when you're trying to limit the attraction yeah. with vermin in certain areas. Yeah, so. very good. Yeah, and that, that's a challenge. But again, if you see vermin that's mm. in a compost, it's an indication that something's not quite right. Mm. The vermin hate wet conditions. Ants are the same. So if you're seeing them in there, it's an indication that part of your compost is too dry. Mm. Um, it's different if they're coming in to visit to get a little bit of wet food, but a nice mature compost, mature worm farm, mm. the vermin shouldn't be in there. Mm which means you're not going to get the other nasties following those vermin like nice brown snakes and yes. things. <laughs> so no, we have a few where I live. Sorry, go ahead, Scott. You also mentioned just in passing there that they're like the whole body's like an eye. Do you want to expand on that one? Yeah, well, they don't have an eye as such, but their whole body has similar qualities and similar response to light and heat. So you know, any part of their body that touches light, they've got to get away from it. So it's, yeah. I guess it's coming back before to, to the emotion and pain response as well. Mm. So, again, a lot of these things uh, aren't understood as well as they could because the poor old worm probably doesn't get as much research as a lot no. of other things. Mm. Well, research on worms. Didn't Darwin himself have a worm obsession? He became obsessed. He really did, yes, yeah. yes. And he did some of their very initial observations on the behaviour of the worm and how they had an ability to drag food down into their burrows mm. by assessing the easiest way to do it. So you can imagine something like a leaf. If you pull it by the stalk, it's going to go down the burrow, but the other way it's not. And the worms somehow know how to assess that and do that. Yeah. So I think that's where he became... It might have been coinciding with sort of a stint of madness as well, but he became very interested in worms and... And it's quite fascinating, the research that he did. So worms can problem solve. I think so. Yep. Yep. And that's one of his theories, one of Darwin's theories as well. Yeah. Yeah, Yep. And I think part of the problem solving is working out the best way to deal with some situation that worms don't want to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Vibrating surface, heat, too much heat, too much cold, all that sort of thing. (laughs) So when I, you know, set up my compost, there were no worms in there. And of course, as you said, they, they know where good things are. So they come to it. So, you know, now I open my compost and I see compost worms that I didn't put there that are, you know, that have come there on their own accord. So, is that because the eggs are in the soil and the matter I've put in there? Like if I've put in some leaf matter and some soil matter to... Yeah, that's uh, one source, most yeah. definitely. The other one is is potentially migration. Uh, worms, probably like humanity, they yeah. want to sort of explore new boundaries, yeah. explore new worlds. So when the conditions are right, there's a certain type of worm, and I like to call them the explorers or the wandering worms, <laughs> that will go to new worlds. And in this way, they're a bit like the snail. They wait for wet weather because they dry it very quickly mm-hmm. and they'll do it at night and they'll move across the surface and go, oh, I've just found your compost tea. Yeah. I think I might move in here and tell my buddies about it. So yeah. when they're communicating with the other worms to tell them this is good, come and check this out, are they physically, do you know if they're physically returning to the community or is there another form of communication happening? This is what I don't know. No idea. I, I believe there's probably another form of communication yeah. going on. I think there's mm-hmm. a reason why the worms have been around for so long yeah. and they've got a brain and they haven't had to evolve much because mm-hmm. I think they're 
they're pretty perfectly evolved as they are. Mm. So I can't imagine that worms would backtrack and yeah. go back to tell their friends yeah. like an ant would. Yeah. There might be something else going on. Yeah, that's really, really interesting stuff, Using isn't it? Using yeah. probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they've got it all set up. But, you know, the thing about worms too is I, I met a, um, a homeopath in Canada who actually said that they're using worms in homeopathics wow. now that they actually find that there's a property with the worm that's particularly good for certain issues that, um, you know, are relevant to how a worm lives. Yeah, so fun. things that are um, not on the surface, things that are maybe deep, emotional, buried, that sort of thing. So, you know, I thought it was fascinating to hear that worms were actually part of homeopathy fantastic yeah, yeah it's that's really a, a good new branch yeah. of homeopathy that they're they're researching now no great that's really good i know yeah. handling worms leaves a certain feel on your hands so i'm yeah. sure it's sort of might be doing some good things there as a moisturizer yeah. i think it's the ultimate hand sanitizer is using wow. worms a hair full of worms instead yeah. and really i think one of the most relaxing pieces of meditation you can almost do is is handling worms mm. and handling a worm farm i just think it's such a relaxing process now i feel bad for not putting the picture of your hands with the worms on our facebook page because <laughs> oh that might put some people off because it was you know very graphic it was a nice big pile of worms yeah like, okay i'll put the, the nicer picture with the worms at a little bit of a distance you know yeah it does <laughs> it does frighten people but yeah. quite often people are so fascinated they'll stay around watching and, yeah. and and then you describe them being an animal not really an insect they don't yeah. have teeth they're not going to bite you there's no poison or anything like that Next thing you know, there's people that might want to handle one worm, yeah. a little ball of worms, and within five minutes, might be a whole handful of worms. So, yeah, I think that's part of getting over that fear ick factor. Yeah. And we deal with it every week with school kids. You know, we do on site management at a lot of schools, and yeah. we talk to lots of different school groups. and. It's quite amazing how quickly the students are sharing a ball of worms and carefully passing it from one student to the other and telling me how they've experienced it. Like, I've still got a baby worm in my hand. What's this little bit of liquid they left behind? <laughs> so that's just the coating on the worm's skin? That's, Very much um, so, yeah. That keeps them moist and yeah, from drying and out. Yeah, yeah. and as, as worms move through... Um, soil and as mm. moves through castings, they're pretty much coating with carbon carbonate, mm. um, sorry, calcium carbonate. So it's like mm. a liming process. Yeah. So not only are worms creating aeration in the soil by leaving tunnels, they're also lining those tunnels with calcium carbonate. Mm. So because I've seen in, in traditional hot composting, you can add lime to the compost. So this this worm is doing this process for you. That's in some right. Ways? Yes, yeah. yes. And also they're doing the turning of the compost for you. Yeah. They're doing everything. So it's that's what yeah, I love about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Most oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Actually, hot compost still comes around to physically turning that compost yeah. regularly and things like that, as well as producing a bit of methane. So I mean, it's fantastic, but yeah. I think mm. letting the worms do all the work just makes it even mm. better. Mm. So you've got um, some connection with Canberra City Farm that we've had on the show a few times. You've got some uh, worm farms happening out there? Yeah, right? I do. When they first took over the site out at Dairy Road, they contacted me and they said, look, we love what you're doing. We love how you're, you're turning food waste into fertiliser. We're very much about education as much as showcasing, so we want you to be part of this. And we're trying to get enterprises, um, the terminology they use is enterprises, mm -hmm. to come up and use some of our land so that we'll both benefit. Are you interested? Mm -hmm. And very quickly decided this is a fantastic mm -hmm. opportunity. Um, I loved what they were doing. The land was very close so we could reduce mm -hmm. the waste miles that's attached mm -hmm. to the work that we're doing. And being able to increase the education of people worked in well too. And there's a lot of very like-minded people out there. Yeah. So we've worked towards now, we have five worm farms out there. They're about 18 to 20 metres long. Mm -hmm. And we can handle up to two tonnes per week on site there. Wow. So we can do it in, in an environment where 
people can come in from the public and have a look mm -hmm. at it when we have open days and things mm -hmm. and people can appreciate that there is no odour. Mm -hmm. um, this is close to a wetland, so obviously there's no leachates. This can be done in an urban environment and the farms look good, it's nice around mm -hmm. it and look what they're doing. So, you know, people always associate large-scale worm farming composting with bad odour and things, mm -hmm. but with worm farming, if you can smell it, there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the first things, first rules when it comes to worm farming is do a bit of assessment before you actually feed the worms. Yeah. Mm. And how does that relate, that bad smell, to the, uh, the aerobic process that you, you mentioned mm -hmm. before? Opposite. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So aerobic process kills the odour because the odour effectively is a certain type of microbe that's breeding up in anaerobic conditions. So rotting, no oxygen is where you're going to smell things. Mm. Um, a bit different to fermenting, but that rotting smell is the best thing for it is getting a bit of air in and a bit of dry mm. material. So we, our worm farms, we feed uh, quite thin over the top, over a large surface area, so it'll never rot. Mm. Uh, yeah. so, so when you're saying feed, we're talking just food scraps. We're talking compost, yeah. household compost, food scraps. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. So the other part of my business is building up a clientele where they provide us with food waste every week. Uh, we have certain clients where we have indoor bins in the kitchen and mm. we come in there twice a week and empty those bins, mm. reline those bins of newspaper because we're trying to minimise plastic mm. and take that food waste away twice a week. Mm. We also do a wheelie bin service for some clubs mm -hmm. and some restaurants and cafes and government mm -hmm. departments. Straight after this interview, I'll be doing two doors down, the Department <laughs> of um, Education just yeah. down the road yeah. there and also the Department of Employment. Yeah. So we take all that food waste away. We weigh it up so we yeah. can give them feedback reports on what's being diverted from landfill. Yeah. And from word of mouth, we've now got over 60 clients in Canberra. That's brilliant. That's Pre-COVID. Pre yes, no. And I've, I've got some um, statistics that you provided, which was you've got about 10 tonnes of um, stuff that you've saved from landfill per week. Per week, that's yeah. right, like, yes. That's a lot of stuff that's yeah. not going into landfill. It it's is, brilliant. yeah. In terms of what we physically collect and deal with, it's around that five to six tonnes. Yeah. But we also lease worm farms large scale. And we do that at places like schools, and we also do it up in Sydney at King's School. We do it out at Mamre House, out mm -hmm. of St Mary's. And that involves ongoing training and support and checking on the farm and mm -hmm. diverting all food waste from that site mm -hmm. into the worm farm so it doesn't go into landfill. Mm -hmm. So if we look at that large private school we do, it's about two and a half tonnes a week just from that school. And that's just from the, the kids' lunches? That yeah, sort of exactly. Thing. I think they do three and a half thousand meals a day there. Yeah, which is quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. And well, last time I was up there, I couldn't believe how much food waste was coming in, even though we had a lockdown. I said, what's going on here? And they sort of said, oh, look, between you and me, if you've heard of the Ruby Princess, all the food that's being delivered to there is being processed and then made here on site using the commercial kitchens here. Mm -hmm. So even when it went down to Wollongong, they're preparing all the food every day in the kitchen, which then feeds our worm farms, and then taking it down to Wollongong. To the people that were in isolation. To the people that were stuck on the boat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, wow, it's great. And we do places like ADFA as well. So yeah. you know, the Fence Force Academy, mm. it's great how much we, we sort of recycle and keep out of landfill from there. Yeah. So how much, how much food waste do you reckon you're not getting? How much is just going straight into landfill? Yeah, well, I sort of mentioned my competitor before. We we sort of conservatively worked out that we're probably diverting around 10 to maybe 15% between us from just Canberra. So, you know, I still think across Australia, the vast, vast majority, and we're talking about at least 90%, mm -hmm. is still making it to landfill. 
So, yeah, so there's a huge potential there to sort of do this more, mm. but there's also a huge potential for people to do more at home, and that's mm. what I really like to focus on too. Yeah, and it's mm. something that can be... Um, mm you know, embraced quite simply because uh, a friend of mine said her neighbour's got one in his basement. Like yeah. He's just wow. set up a little small worm farm in his basement because they're in a apartment building and there's yep. not a lot of, you know, outdoor space. So, yep. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I, I recently set up a little one in a basement too yeah. um, in Barton. Yeah, it's yeah. nine metres long so, you know, 1.5 metres wide. <laughs> pots and things that you have on your um, small bit of balcony space or whatever that yeah. you don't have any, you know, garden in the ground. It's all maybe in pots on a balcony, but you can yep. still vermicompost. Yep. And yeah. uh, and put the worm castings onto your um, potted plants. Fantastic to hear. Yep, that's yeah. ultimate recycling. And people with yards can do more too. And, mm-hmm. and I think schools are a great place to target because mm. I've done some waste auditing work for ACT government years and years ago, but it sort of worked out that for the average school, every 100 students in a primary school is producing around 42 kilograms of food waste. So the average school in Canberra is producing well over 100 kilos of food waste a week. So if you can keep that on site and try to turn that into nutrients using worm farming or composting, well, not only are you doing a great thing for the environment, the kids are then taking that message home. And next thing you know, they're asking for a worm farm for Christmas instead Mm of... Uh, it's a Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And I was just thinking too, with um, you know what you're teaching the kids. We've talked. We've had a couple of gardening shows in a row. It wasn't intentional, but I think we're going to give Costa a run for his money here. So, um, <laughs> maybe he'll come on the show and talk to us as well. Excellent. Uh, um, anyway, so yeah, we've done a couple of gardening shows, and the, the thing that keeps coming up is that you know, especially during COVID, with people, you know, families, kids being at home more, there's more opportunity to get involved in the garden. And that's the thing, kids who've never been exposed to gardening have been discovering just how fascinating it is for them to to actually take responsibility for a living organism like a plant and, and you know, from seed through to germination through to harvest, you know, yep. where they're seeing that whole process. And now here's a another whole aspect of, you know, the composting Fantastic. and feeding feeding the soil. It's so good, so good to hear. And these are long-term changes because yeah. they become part of your life. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm going back to schools now because obviously there's less incursions or excursions or schools. But I went to one this week out at Kayleen and one of the girls came up to me really excited, sort of saying, oh, it's so good to see you back. We can't wait until you can give us some lessons again. And then she told me about her little project where she set up a communal worm farm being shared by six of her neighbours. She's the custodian of it, the one that's in charge of it. So not only is she sort of thinking about her household, just thinking about how to help yeah. her neighbours too. And, and that's the sort of thing that, you know, really grows. This is when things become global. Yeah. Mm. And it's going to normalise things. You know, yes. this is how we're going to do, um, you know, backyard gardening, hopefully in a community, you know, when you've got enough people educated and yep. interested. Yep, you know, exactly, they're, they're going to, yeah. like, like this young lady, are going to take action. Yep, yeah, exactly right. Yep, you're going to be at a friend's house having having lunch, going, where do I put my food scraps? What? Yeah. You don't have Nobody an organic worm bin? Yeah. What are you talking <laughs> about? <laughs> and speaking of that, like, later in the show, we're going to have uh, Brooke Clinton from uh, ACT uh, Capital <coughs> Composting. Oh, ACT, ACT Scraps, I think, is coming mm-hmm. to join us. Mm-hmm. Pardon me, Brooke, if I've just said that incorrectly. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the things that Brooke had mentioned is that she was noticing some of the changes that are being made internationally and in Vermont in the USA. It's now against the law to put your scraps in a landfill. Right, okay. So mm-hmm. they're actually passing legislation now to prevent scraps going to landfill and there's all sorts of community alternatives for Fantastic. people to dispose of their scraps. Well, that's certainly one way to make a quick change. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, like, like the way a single 
reuse plastics, you know. We're just not going to automatically assume we can waste things anymore. We're going to have to think about where we put our stuff, where it goes. Fantastic. And, of course, it can't be done by everyone, so it's going to lead to more communal solutions too. Yeah, so yeah. Commercial and communal. Yeah. So um, we've talked, we've touched on a couple of things about. So the correct name for worm farming is vermicomposting. Is that right? Um, or I vermiculture. Vermiculture. That's vermiculture. What we call it. Yeah. Yes. I'm backtracking a little bit here because we sort mm-hmm. of jumped yeah. right in. <laughs> yeah. So and you're a vermiculturist. Yes. So, um, so this whole um, concept of the worms, like they leave something called worm castings, right? And that's the the vital bit that you're harvesting. That's right. So can you walk us through that process a little bit and explain? Because I've heard you sort of scrape the the worm castings off the top of the compost or... Yeah, that's right. Yes. So I guess the worms Mm. are eating um, all the organic material. Mm. So it's the food waste. It might be the bedding material. And by bedding, I'm talking about where they're living, Mm -hmm. whether it be shredded newspaper or coconut fiber, things like that. Mm. Pretty much everything they live in, everything they consume gets turned into vermicast or Mm. worm castings. So worms will consume organic material, reduce the volume by about 90 to 95%, make it highly concentrated, Mm -hmm. and it makes this beautiful black material that's Mm -hmm. just so much better smelling than soil, Mm -hmm. so much better smelling than other compost Mm -hmm. too. You can look at a handful of castings versus a handful of the best compost you can get, Mm -hmm. and they're just so different. Um, And I think the casting just looks so far superior. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole process to doing that. You let the worms do their bit, and that's consuming organic material to produce those castings. And then regularly, it might be once a year, it might be a bit more regularly, you harvest the castings. And that's really a process in itself. It's all about trying to separate the worms Mm. from the beautiful product that they've made. Mm. So large scale, the way that we do it is we effectively stop feeding the worms in a certain area where we're looking to harvest and feed them in a different area Mm. and the worms will migrate away to Mm. it. Um, so that's going to get rid of the vast majority of worms. There's always going to be a few stragglers like mm-hmm. there is of anything, really. Um, but they're going to be living in the top 10 centimetres of the worm farm itself. They don't like to live in their own poo, the, the compacted mm-hmm. stuff, so they're living in the top layers. You can scrape that off, and then pretty much what you left is, is with pure casting. So that's how you harvest it. Mm-hmm. It's a bit different how you might do it at home. So if the casting is their system. waste product, basically. That's, that's right. Yeah. It's worm poo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it so sounds highly... so clean. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> and people can play with it, and you tell them worm poo, and they look at it and go, "I shouldn't be holding this. Wait a minute, why not?" So yeah, it's got no cleaning my casting bowl the other day. <laughs> and, and to get, you mentioned to to get the worms to move away from an area that you want to harvest from. So you're saying that um, light and sound will also have them move away. Too yeah, if you need them to yeah, clear that's, an area. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. we do that as a secondary process. We tend to try to separate the worms as much as possible, make it friable by just sort of you know, breaking it up a lot, and then using the vibrations and light. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing you can do in the Canberra climate is even just leave it outside in the middle of winter. And the worms <laughs> are going to go right down the bottom to form a ball, come back the next day and scrape off the, the frozen castings. Mm. So, yeah, so that's mm. sort of how you can do it. So, you know, I guess when we're leasing worm farms, we, mm-hmm. we stretch out because there's quite a bit to worm farming, even though, you know, people might leap in thinking there's not much. But mm-hmm. there's the whole aspect about why we're doing it, how mm-hmm. we do it, um, troubleshooting, how we overcome problems. But then there's about harvesting worms, separating the... Making worm juice, all sorts of other things, and and that's where you know quite often get best to get your hands dirty and get in there and do it. Mm. But you can use those basics. It's it's all about trying to use vibrations to try to get the worms to move away from it. 
You heard a lovely, a lovely quote I read. It says, worms are a lot like humans. They like a certain temperature range. They also like to have a kitchen and a lounge room. <laughs> what did <laughs> you mean right. by that? So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think worms need to have time off as well. Yeah. But one of the best things you can do is provide them with a really good home base. Mm. And that home base is the lounge room. Yeah. So that's a material that tends to be water retentive, a bit more rich in carbon, but it's somewhere where they can always go to where they know it's not going to have too much variation in temperature. And this is things such as your coconut fibre. It might be an aged compost, aged manure or shredded newspaper. So all that sort of stuff is going to be a place where it's not their favourite food. They want to eat the food waste, but it's going to be the favourite place to hang out in. So that's why I use that analogy. So people sort of start to think about bedding for the important aspect of farming that it is. It's where they go to relax. It is. It really yeah, is, yeah. yeah. But also having that bulk of bedding there means that if your days get to 45 degrees or minus 8, mm. it's not going to be like that in the middle of the bedding. So mm. the worms have always got somewhere to mm. escape to when the conditions aren't mm. quite right. Mm. And that does happen in most most of Australia where we have these extremities. And for our overseas listeners, we're talking um, Celsius here. So that's 45 Celsius down to minus 8 Celsius. Yep, that's right. So that's, you know, big range. Canberra's pretty extreme climate there. It is, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we can get easy 20 degrees in one day. Yes. Mm. So um, I saw on some of the pictures you had on your website that it looked like there were these corn, like a recycled plastic made of corn or something that were in the... Worm farm? Like yeah, worm yeah. Can eat those as well? Yeah, they can, yeah. Um, mm. I mentioned before how for a lot of our clients, we like to use newspaper. We mm. line the bins of newspaper because mm. yeah, that's a really good way of recycling mm. newspaper. The worms love it. It's mm. got inorganic tones in it. Sorry, it's mm. got organic tones in it, so it's great worm food. Um, we try to minimise plastic bags as little as possible, mm-hmm. but we have clients that work in defence and also hospitals which use those green bags which are made out of cornstarch. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do breathe and they do sort of liquid, they do get wet, mm-hmm. um, but the worms will eat them. And they're mm-hmm. suitable bags for cold composting. There's a lot of bags on the market which are called environmental mm-hmm. bags, but they're just not. They just sort of break down into microplastics. Mm-hmm. But the ones that we do keep in the farm are those cornstarch bags. Mm-hmm. And if people wanted to use this, say they're in an environment where they have to bag their stuff to remove it. Yep. Um, where would they find bags like that? Like what uh, what supply sources do yeah, you Yeah, there's always a few so- uh, sites online we can get it. Um, but now even I think mm-hmm. some supermarkets and large hardware stores do mm-hmm. stock those those bags now. Mm-hmm. There's a few different companies that produce them now. It's great. So, yeah, they're, they're really good. They're quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Hence, you know, newspapers are a good alternative, mm-hmm. I think. But at the home... Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's not that hard to just to wash out your bucket. No. So if you're doing it two times a week, once, twice a week, you just empty out your bucket, mm-hmm. give it a quick rinse and it's done. And even just putting a little bit of folded newspaper in the bottom of the bucket is going to still catch all that mm-hmm. leachate and liquids and things. Mm-hmm. So it's going to make the cleanup easier. Mm-hmm. There's always alternatives that are better yeah. for the environment. And speaking about like what worms like to eat, there's certain things that you shouldn't be putting in your worm farm for them to eat, right? Like, so there's a lot of misunderstandings, I think, around the type of food that, that should go in there. So, yeah. Or things that make it smell. Like you mentioned that you can get a smell if you've got the wrong things going in there. Yeah, most definitely, yeah. And this is one of the, I guess, the areas that is really poorly understood. Worms are like us. They've got their preferred food, but they've also got a wide range of things that they can eat. So my general advice is the smaller your worm farm, the more particular you need to be. When it comes to our worm farms that might have 50 square metres of feeding area, the only thing that we keep out is raw meat. Mm. 
So if we pick up from a cafe and there's all these carcasses of mm. turkey in there, we'll keep the carcasses out. Mm. But cooked meat we keep in there. All the other things which are, you know, supposedly no-no for worm mm -hmm. farms like citrus and onion and dairy products, cheeses, mm. all that goes in our worm farms, not mm -hmm. a problem at all. Even bread, which some people say you shouldn't put in a worm mm -hmm. farm. So I guess the best analogy, again, is, is us humans, if we had a whole plate full mm of lemon peel we're going to mm. feel pretty sick but mm. if we have a little bit of lemon zest in our food mm. it adds mm. to it and it's much like that with the worms that you don't want to overfeed things which mm. the less preferred things in their diet mm. so it's like dairy was okay to put in there for instance yeah, yeah. all things in or small eggs, amounts things like that yeah. Yeah, yeah yes all things in small amounts are fine mm -hmm. but your small worm farm at home you probably do need to be a little bit particular mm -hmm. because it's it's one thing the worms don't necessarily want to eat it the microbes will come in and sweeten it before the worms will eat it. But but that whole process can acidify your farm a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if if you're running your farm well, you never have to add lime or gypsum or anything like that. But, you know, we've got a pretty varied diet and there's things that go in there which takes mm -hmm. a little longer for the worms mm -hmm. to eat. And is it a good idea to sort of cut some of these things into smaller pieces? So, like, rather than putting, you know, half an orange peel in there, like chopping it up so that it's, you know? Um, I'm very much of the theory that... Let the worms do the work. Okay. Um, and I the like other this, thing the worms too is are doing it all. They do it all, yeah. yeah. And the more you cut it up, the more it's removing the oxygen, the spaces. So by putting coarse things in there, it actually keeps the process aerobic and it makes it easy for the worms to move around and start to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if you put it in a blender and the next thing you know, you've got this congealed mess, it's more likely to rot. Mm. So, you know, I'm very much of the opinion, let the worms do the work. And the other thing, if you're doing it at more larger scale, if you're collecting food waste from others, mm. is if you, if you use some sort of mechanical process to break it up, mm. if there's any contaminants in there, it's going to make it worse. And by contaminants, I mean it's the inorganic material the worms can't eat. Mm. It's your plastic, your glass, your things like mm -hmm. that. Like you imagine, things that should be in your other recycling. Yeah, thing. imagine yeah. putting all your food scraps in a blender and then yeah. there's a little bit of glass in there too. Next mm -hmm. thing you know, you've contaminated your worm farm. Worms will never make contamination worse. Um, and the process won't make it worse because we're not doing anything mechanical. So what we do is as we remove all the inorganic material, it doesn't matter if we miss a little bit, we'll get it next time because the worms will eat everything else. And they'll leave behind that plastic line mm. that's in the coffee cup or they'll leave behind that annoying little plastic sticker that's on every single apple that we buy in Australia and orange mm. and things. Yeah, it's fascinating so, stuff. Mm. And also I was reading too that if you want to put things like grass clippings in there, it's better to sort of break them up a bit like so they don't all clump together so it's harder for the worms to yeah. um, to work through them if they're sort of bowled up. Yep, that's, that's right. And, mm. and again, it's being careful with things like that because... Mm as those sort of things break down, it's more natural for them to generate heat, mm -hmm. which isn't necessarily something you want with cold composting mm -hmm. slash worm farming. So, yeah, again, if you sprinkle <laughs> your, your grass clippings over the top, the worms will happily go through it. Um, but composting also always has a place, and that's mm -hmm. better for your browns, your, mm -hmm. your sticks, your twigs, your leaves, your grass clippings, things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, when your worms move into that compost, um, that's when you know that that's actually become mm -hmm. mature and it's not heating up anymore. Mm. I'll make it even better. Oh, interesting. It's fascinating too because, you know, during the bushfires with so much land being burned, how, do you know how the worms were impacted by the bushfires? Like with so much ash and that, that would make it really hard for them to keep their bodies moist, right? So. Yeah, yeah. I'd say um, most areas where you see native worms living in the decaying matter is more rainforest areas. Mm -hmm. They're probably less impacted. Hopefully all those beautiful mm -hmm. big earthworms just went deep underground mm -hmm. and escaped those bushfires. Because mm -hmm. I'm sure through the communication... Because I'm thinking when they're trying to regenerate the land, like we had some bushfire folks on about a month ago and they've been 
you know, desperately seeking garden donations of garden tools yes, so they can start yes. gardening again because yeah. then everything got devastated. And I'm just wondering what the soil and the, yeah. uh, you know, the whole system, what it's going to be like if there's things that are now missing from their yeah, system. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think those sort of worms, I mean, the big concern not so much is escaping the fire front. I think mm. they're pretty clever at doing that. Mm. It's the food that's there afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure they can survive for a fair while with not much food, but it's mm. just that whole... And it's like all the native animals, just that whole mm -hmm. removal of the ecosystem, which is so sad. Mm -hmm. But we, um, before coronavirus, we were involved with a project um, taking worm juice down to some of the South Coast communities because there's just so many keen gardeners down there devastated by what's going on but the first thing they want to get back into is their gardens so yeah before their house they're home. putting a garden in. yeah exactly yeah. yeah so it's just sort of trying to help them establish their gardens by giving them some sort of organic product which is going to help build up the life forms in their soil mm. and make things better for them faster so you, you've, you've mentioned worm juice a few times is that worm tea is that the same thing you've yes. referred to as worm tea do you want yeah. to tell us what that is yeah well i guess um we, the castings we know is is that um, concentrated poo that they leave behind, which is full of nutrients, full of microbes. What you can do is turn that into a liquid fertiliser. Most people know there's a tap on the bottom of a worm farm. You turn that on and you get like a nutrient-rich juice out the bottom. That's really good fertiliser. But what I think is even better, because it has no odour and it's probably got a lot less pathogens, more nutrients, is getting the castings and then brewing a tea out of it. Mm. So we use a process of agitation and aeration. So we pretty much put it in mixes, turn it into a syrup, uh, using usually nothing but tank water, and then put aerators into it so it's get mm. all this bubbling going. So it makes a really good nutrient-rich mm. solution. It's something which anyone can do at home. It's just compost tea, really. A lot of people make compost tea. So this before. is like an alternative to the seaweed solution. That it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in terms of alternatives, um, you know, we've been doing trials now for mm. six years, trying to get a product together which we can confidently take to the market. We know is consistent and is going to be really good, mm. and we know it outperforms most fertilisers mm. in the trials. But as a base, we actually had a popular brand of seaweed extract. Mm tested, analysed, as well as our samples of our worm juice. And across all nutrients, um, it was about three to ten times higher mm. when it comes to the, the liquid fertiliser that we're making. And it was up to like 20 times higher for some. I think mm. seaweed extract, the only place it was higher was sodium. Mm. <laughs> so... so with the seaweed extract, uh, I think they refer to that as a tonic yes. for the plants. So is that the same as the, the worm tea or the worm juice? Is yeah, it there's tonic? pretty it's not less of a fertilizer. Yeah, there's the pretty strict definitions out there about what you can call fertilizers. It comes down to certain percentages percentages mm -hmm. of the essential nutrients like um, phosphorus, potassium, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so and nitrogen, of course. So. All those ones don't have necessary high enough levels of that unless you make it a really concentrated solution. So it's probably more conditioner or tonic, mm -hmm. yeah. But with our worm juice, I guess you know, where I think it's so valuable is it's not just the nutrients, but it's the microbes that are in it mm -hmm. that help plants become healthy and help mm -hmm. soil become healthy. And seaweed extract has around 2,600 active microbes for every mill. Um, if you compare that to our worm juice, it's about 7 million per mil. Wow. 
And so it's, it's, like, it's like the acidophilus of the acidophilus sort of thing. Yes. Like the best yogurt you're going to buy or whatever. It, it, and and yeah. it's just incredible because that's what's going to turn any soil healthy. There's mm. a lot of nutrients in a lot of soils, but it's just not available to the plant. Mm. So there's certain microbes mm. that are attached to the root of the plant and then help those plants take up nutrients. Mm. There's other microbes that will go into the soil and break down organic material to then make a plant food as well. And there's all these... Mm inorganic nutrients in your soil which aren't available to plants until you get some microbes in there so i know when we did trials um, in viticulture in some um, vineyards around mudgee mm -hmm. they had an almost a doubling of their production wow and they just put it down to the worm juice and i sort of said well i reckon it's probably because you've got a lot of unused nutrients in your soil as well and the worm juice is helping you take that up you just activated those exactly things. yeah and soil science is such a <laughs> such an old area but such a an area that's very poorly researched because there's just so much to it you know a teaspoon of of compost is going to have a million different types of microbes and that's sort of what we're talking yeah, about. It's Nature. pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? It the, is. The scale and even the numbers. Exactly. You could do a doctorate on one or two microbes mm -hmm. and be able to talk about that at conferences all around the world, but we're talking about <laughs> millions of different types of microbes. Yeah. So I won't even pretend to understand what they do. Well, we had a um, fabulous gentleman on, uh, ex-CSIRO scientist, a couple of times on the show called Walter Yenner, and his specialty is the soil carbon sponge. Yes. So he's yes. talked a lot about that if we could do one thing um, in our environmental protection is to repair and preserve the soil carbon sponge, it would actually ameliorate a lot of the CO2 emissions that we have. Like the soil carbon sponge would, would probably do more to repair than, than reducing CO2 emissions. Yep, and yep. his um, concept was being able to do this within a two-year period on, on most arable land. Yeah. So if a, a traditional arable land farmer started to use regenerative farming practices, within two years you're going to see a tremendous transformation. So I'm thinking this is where your worms come in, you know, and the concept of activating all the microbes in the soil and yeah. bringing a balance back. So if you've got a really depleted um, land area that, you know, has maybe been farmed traditionally and has been um you know treated with pesticides like how, how would that affect the worms if you're going into an area that's had a lot of pesticide treatment or has been um you know saturated and have now killed all the microbes yep mm -hmm. can they repair that can they or is it going to be detrimental for them to be yeah i guess with any living living thing mm. there's certain things which is going to kill you and there's no coming back from it so there's probably certain active ingredients which will annihilate worms and mm. they use those in worming tablets for mm. livestock and people i mm -hmm. guess but worms are pretty resilient um, they're very good at being able to consume foods which would otherwise kill most animals and it's going to go through them without actually infecting them mm -hmm. um, there's been experiments with radioactive waste where they might have you know, 10 cubic meters of radioactive waste the worms will go in there and reduce the size of it down wow. to maybe you know you know half a cubic <laughs> meter it's all gone through the worms but the worms are okay and they've transformed <laughs> they've it left something it behind. benign yeah, yeah. yeah. i've heard so, of a similar thing with heavy metal contamination like mine waste and stuff mm -hmm. where they've put worms through and they've actually mm -hmm. They actually do bioaccumulate the heavy metals, but then they, in a fairly brutal fashion, they burn the worms down yep. and collect the actual stuff. They're using the worms like an ore. Yes, yes. And they and they can do testing of those worms to mm -hmm. the flesh of the worms to sort of see how much they've accumulated. But yeah. over time, those worms actually then expel all those, those nasties as well. So, mm -hmm. yes, they do a, a pretty incredible job. And, you know, I guess 
there's a lot of things which are harmful which will go through the worm and mm. that's the sort of things we maybe should be keeping out of our worm farms. Mm. And I guess the example I always use is photocopying paper. Mm. You know, anyone can so don't line your bins with photocopy paper? No, no. And again, you're not going to read this anyway. It's just mm. me erring on the side of caution. But I hate that metallic smell that you get when you walk past yeah. a photocopy that's not working properly. Mm. And it's not an organic toner that's in it. So it's not going to hurt the worms. Yeah. But over the years, they're just going to accumulate and accumulate in your castings. And who knows what they're going to discover about that in the future. So there's a lot of things we're going to think about. If you're using that on your tucker, it'll bioaccumulate in you. (laughs) That's right. Yes, exactly right. Yes, yes. So, yeah, but the worms are very good at recovering. I think they're quite resilient. And I think they've got an ability, like microbes, to go into a a state of dormancy Mm -hmm. where they can probably just wait till the conditions are right. Uh, a worm egg, for example. So they live quite a long time, too. They so do, they yep. can do this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, worms will lay eggs, <laughs> lay capsules, which have up to five baby worms in it. But if you get those capsules and dehydrate them, they'll last up to three years. So it's these sort of things which animals can do, which is going to ensure their long-term survival if there's those sort of adverse conditions. Yeah, that might incredible. be their way of surviving the bushfire yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Or a long yeah, period yeah, of drought. If, or, yeah. yeah, and I think with the bushfire, if they're getting to the stage where they're thinking, well, there's no hope for me, there's not enough food around and it's not going to be for a little while, that's when they're going to leave the eggs behind. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like, you know, my brother was trying to set up worms Recently, and I gave him a box of worms, and sure enough, he didn't put any air holes in it. Worms need air, huh? And he got home, and the whole top of the box was completely covered in eggs. And I just sort of thought, well, they've been so stressed out, they thought they're going to die, and they've just gone crazy and laid eggs yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Stress plant will go to seed as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's another discovery. Wow, yeah. something, something uh, again, I haven't read anywhere, but now I know. <laughs> I'm not going to stress the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. It's, t- it's easier to talk than write. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in Canada, where we used to live on the West Coast, we have um, quite um, a sort of an iconic slug there, like the West Coast slug. And one's a banana slug, and the other one's a black slug. And those slugs, often you find them in your compost heap, and they're okay. eating a lot of the waste. So, probably similar process to the worms. Yep. But they actually love um, to eat feces. Okay. So yeah. if you've got pets and yeah. you're, you know, picking up after your pets in the garden, you pop the poo into a pile by your compost and the slug will go to that first. Wow. Okay. They'll actually yep. eat the dog poo or the cat poo first before they'll go to the food waste. And they, they clean it up super fast. So I was thinking, you know, one of the things that they have, not in the ACT, unfortunately, but elsewhere, is called the BOG program, which is for recyclable um, pet waste and cat litter. Because so much um, mm. cat litter, which is, you know, manufactured with um, things that don't break down very well and gets put into a plastic bag and ends up at the tip. So you've got, you know, non-breakdownable cat litter in a plastic bag at the tip going into landfill. With Not great. With a package yep. of lovely fertilisers yeah. in, in the middle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they have this thing called the bomb program now in some areas where they collect with the green bin. So it's tied into the green bin concept. They collect um, the pet litter. And it gets recycled as long as you have the appropriate type of litter. So if you're buying this recycled paper litter or recycled corn litter and soy litter and various things that break down, um, they collect it with the green bins and it gets turned into mulch. So it becomes part of the city mulching program. That sounds like such such a good idea. Yeah, I don't know if if worms – would worms eat that sort of stuff? Would that be something that – Yeah, again, they would eat it. Um, I've also read about this certain – 
pathogens or nasty things that you do get in cat poo and dog poo, mm. which might remain after it goes to the gut of the worm. Mm. I think the worms would probably get rid of most of it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, they do tend to, say, be a bit more careful when it comes to, mm-hmm. you know, I guess your household pets and their mm-hmm. manure. But that's a fantastic idea. If you hot compost stuff like that, it's going to kill everything. Yeah. And if the scientists did a bit of research into it, maybe worm farming would kill it too. Mm-hmm. But you know, I know I recently sold worms to a, a lady living in an apartment who had a dog that was bigger than her <laughs> and she just had a worm farm for all of its poo. Uh, that's wow. what she, that's exclusively why she was setting it up. Mm-hmm. And I sort of said, well, just keep me up to date because, you know, I wouldn't mind to see how it goes. You're always going to have to mix in a little bit of other stuff too, but recently she come to me so it's going fantastic well, this so, is a whole new sideline for worm farms yeah definitely pet well, waste removal. i'm just thinking about the slugs now i'm sure we've got something in australia and in, in sort of the probably the coastal areas the more moist areas you would have that in like um temperate <laughs> rainforest or something yeah yes yeah, mm. lots of different ones out there yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you've said that we've We've got sort of 10 to 15% of the food waste. How are we going to get the rest? Well, Can we replicate your model? Can we expand it? Can we just go to schools? Or? Okay, yeah. Would you like me to answer as an economist? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I guess I always sort of think that economics can solve a lot of the environmental problems of the world, but it all comes down to sort of, you know, getting the balance right, internalising these externalities. At the moment with waste management, it's a little bit upside down. Um, you know, you've got your large waste management companies and it's a little bit too easy just to bury that waste and get rid of it. So things will change over time where there will be more value in what comes out of composting and farming. So that's going to make it more viable, which means more people are going to get into it. Hopefully things such as recent experience of humanity means we want to get into our gardens more. So there's going to be more demand for doing that sort of stuff. And what goes hand in hand with gardening is recycling your own food scraps at home using worm farming and composting. So there's, there's those sort of movements which grow over time. You can always regulate these sort of things, but I just think it's it's up to people like me and our industry to show that businesses and households can save money by doing the right thing by the environment. Um, it costs money to take waste and landfill and things like that, but if you can sort of show that, hey, if this food waste comes out of it and we're charging a little bit money but it's left, less, well, then why don't you do this? And we've got 60 clients at the moment and they all get it. This is what they do. Uh, They also know that it's positive for their staff to know that their business supports these sort of initiatives, that their food waste is going to be diverted from landfill. So they're really proud about doing these sort of things. And then they're more likely to bring in their food waste from home to use the bins at work. So it's, it's a movement as much as anything. And that movement sort of showing along the way that, hey, look, we're getting bigger and bigger and we're getting better and better. We're doing things better. And the way that we historically and traditionally do things is not going to last forever. No, that's brilliant. So I think we're getting close to um, having our other guest on here, Brooke Clinton from Capital Scraps Composting. So um, Brooke's uh, doing the hop composting as opposed to the cold composting. So it'd be interesting for chatting about the differences there. And mm-hmm. Some people might find that one will work better for their setup than others. So we're just going to go to a quick music break while we get the phone sorted with Brooke. Oh, I, want, I want something even yeah. better than space worms. You want something yeah. even better than space worms. Oh my goodness, you're really putting the pressure on me here, Scotty. Okay, here's one. Let's go to the formidable vegetable hey. assembly. Okay, this is Break It Down. Okay, and we are back. So we have joining us now... 
from uh, Capital Scraps Composting and the Hackett Compost Collective, we have Brooke Clinton. Um, Brooke is the driving force behind Capital Scraps Composting and the Hackett Compost Collective and is meeting a great need for all of our household waste, but we don't have anywhere to dispose of. So welcome to the show, Brooke. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you. Good morning. Yeah, so we've still got Sid here with us from um, Global Warming as well, Global Worming, sorry. Uh, so we were just talking about cold composting, vermiculture, vermicomposting, and your composting is, is a different method. It's hot composting. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the um, Capital Scraps composting and, and how it all started and, and what the process is for, for your uh, style of composting? Yeah, sure. So I've been running, um, initially it was the Hackett Compost Collective and it was run out of my backyard. And um, I, my background is in microbiology and biochemistry and that's what kind of drove me to really perfect my composting techniques and, um, and get hot composting up and running um, because it's such a wonderful process. Um, and that, and we're now collecting scraps from households all over the inner north of Canberra, from Downer and Hackett and Watson and Braddon and Turner and O'Connor um, and Ainsley. Um, and so we take all of that material and put it into the hot compost. And one of the major advantages of doing the hot composting over cold composting is that we can get a greater turnaround. We can put in a greater volume of material um, and have that be converted into usable compost much more quickly. So um, we can, and we can do that on a smaller um, physical footprint. So we've got um, three composting hubs that we feed continuously. Um, and we do a whole lot of manual labor to keep them going. Um, that's really the trick to it. <laughs> yeah, I've seen you in there with a the pitchfork doing it. It's pretty yeah. impressive. A lot of I'm getting a lot of muscles going there. It is a good workout. Yeah. So, you know, you don't need a gym membership. That's another benefit. And so the three compost, um, I guess, bins would be the correct name, or they're more like a big wooden um, container that you have. That That's covering a lot of suburbs, just those three? Yeah, so... Uh, I've got a, the, our Hackett composter was supported by a grant from AxSmart and um, thanks to that grant, um, it's from the Community Zero Emissions Program, which is a really great um, program that the ACT government have put out. Um, that has helped us to collect some data and so I know exactly how many kilos of food waste have gone into that particular composter and it's up to about 2.3 tonnes since the start of the year. So. For something that's only um, three metres long by one metre wide, um, it's got a pretty good throughput and um, our other composter will be doing a similar volume of material and then the one in my backyard is still going strong. It's a little bit smaller than the other two but still very active. Mm, that's brilliant. And you have a great way of, of collecting the compost from, from the suburbs. It sounds like you have a, an e-bike that's charged with solar panels and you do a bucket run for compost bucket run each week. That sounds fascinating. How does that work? Yeah, so we run around on our trike, which has a little motor fitted to it to help us. Um, it's, there's me and one other staff member 
Um, Beatrice is actually out on the track this morning. So to anyone listening in the In the frost and the fog, yeah. Yep, yep. She um, started nice and early when it was still very frosty. Um, And the whole idea is to keep the whole operation as um, carbon neutral as possible because it really, especially when we're talking about household wastes, we're not talking about large volumes of food waste. Um, And so it doesn't make sense to drive a big truck around to collect this um, stuff up. What we can do is is be a little bit leaner and and use um, the trike, which is a very small um, vehicle in a way, um, and collect up those little bits and pieces. And that's actually why we've um, our name is Capital Scraps because we want to emphasise to people that um, re- reduction of food waste is definitely always better before you think about recycling and things. So we do try to encourage people to to be wise with their food waste and hopefully most of what's going into the buckets are just the scraps left over, cut off from your food prep. Oh, that's fantastic. And so the buckets, what sort of size are we talking about for a household? Um, we start everyone off with two small buckets. Um, we have a lot of apartment dwellers Um signed up to our collection service, which makes a whole lot of sense for them. Um, And if it's just one or two people in an apartment, they often just need um, a small two-litre bucket that they might fill two of those a week. But we've also got um, families, uh, a lot of families with young children, and maybe they just um, don't have the time to do their own composting. And um, we've got some large 10-litre buckets, which they... um, fill up thanks to those hungry mouths and lots of apple cores and things like that. Um, Yeah, and all of the buckets are post-consumer buckets. So by that, we just mean that they're yogurt buckets that people in our community have um, donated to us. So um, lots of householders eating lots of yogurt. um, And we collect up the larger buckets from uh, Boost Juice stores because they throw out a lot of buckets on a continual basis. Now, that's fantastic. I was, we were just making a, a yogurt joke earlier, so that's appropriate that you're using yogurt <laughs> buckets. Now, that's brilliant. Um, so when people um, have filled their bucket, say it's before the Friday bucket run, can they drop it off to you as well? Can they bring the bucket to, to your location? Ah, that's that's a question that comes up a lot. Um, I do, so we've got, um, I think, about 85 households that that we collect from, that we go to their doorstep and collect the buckets from. I still do have some um, householders in Hackett that drop off at my place, but it's not something that I encourage anymore. Um, I know a lot of community gardens and other places do have drop-offs, but it is something that's a little bit prone to problems. Um, one thing about the collection service is that we re- we strive really hard to have it be reliable. And in Hackett, we can actually offer twice weekly collection. And why we're happy to offer that because we really want to get those scraps while they're still fresh. We don't want them to start Um, fermenting and breaking down in the bottom of the bucket as you leave it sitting around because um, that actually has implications for our process. 
um, and managing the composting. Right. So I noticed in some of the pictures of you guys working um, at the site that there's a lot of face masks being worn, not because of COVID, but because of um, smelly things. So we were just talking with Sid earlier, how the worm farms actually, if they're healthy farms, uh, don't have an odour. So is that quite different for hot composting? Um, with Yeah, with our hot composting, there is always going to be some odour. We don't wear the masks for odour, though. Um, it does help a little bit, but... The masks are, the, are just there as a precaution against fungal spores mostly. So um, we're, when we're turning the compost, we're leaning over it and it's um, it's basically giving us a little sauna that you get a whole face full of steam as you get in there and turn it. And so in that steam, there, there are going to be some fungal spores. And just on the off chance that me or one of my staff or a volunteer is allergic to the particular type of fungus, um, yeah, we wear the face masks. Okay, so it's personal, more of a just a protection from um, being um, impacted by something that is going to be harmful to you. Yeah. Okay, okay, great. So, um, you know, the opposite of what Sid was doing is that you don't have worms in your compost. Is that correct? Or you try not to have worms? Like, yeah, I, that's I right. A lot, that? Of people, um, a lot of people get excited um, when they see our lovely big composters and... and um, see that they're producing good compost and they say, oh, they must, that must be full of worms. But no, our, our composters are maintained at a temperature, an internal temperature of about 70 degrees. So um, our composters are not huge. So the outside edges will be closer to ambient temperature, but we manage it so that the, the inner core of each of the bays in the composters is um, kept it above above about 60 degrees and they're usually sitting there at about 70 degrees so Um, that's obviously too hot for the worms yeah so occasionally um i I do have a little worm farm and sometimes i put some of the the castings into the compost um and occasionally some worms get in that way and they just hang out on the edges but yeah it's not it's not somewhere they really want to be Oh, I love it. So that the composting can work together. So you can actually put the castings from um, vermicomposting onto a hot compost and have it mingle in there. Is it, Sid, did you want to jump in with that one? Um, so you, the, adi- the addition of the castings, is that to add microbes to the process? Or are you just doing it in there as, as a mix to sort of help get a mix going with the, the wet stuff, which tends to be the food waste? Does that help? Um, yeah, it's it's very occasional. It's just to help um, the the kind of matrix properties of the <laughs> the whole composting milieu. Um, yeah, but I'd say to anyone who's doing composting, um, vermicomposting, or bakashi, they're all they're all compatible with each other and. Um, yeah. Okay, okay. so um, well, something we haven't talked about yet is bokashi. Do you want to give us a little bit of information on that? Because is that a third type of composting? Is it different from vermicomposting and hot composting? Yeah, so um, before I was running the compost collective, I, I lived in an apartment myself and I found that what worked for me was bokashi. Um, it's got a Japanese name. It was a Japanese gentleman who kind of um, sorted out the process for that. But it's it's a fermentation technique. And so it's very easy. All that you need is a bucket with a um, drainage hole and a tap on it. 
um, and then you can put all of your food waste in and you add um, some additional carbon material and a culture of bacteria and you can buy you can buy Bakashi setups from every Bunnings store now um, and you get the special little bucket and you also have to buy the um, the Bakashi mix which is usually just brand coated in this um, lactobacillus bacteria um, and so, and they'll either give you the brand or a spray um, and yeah you just add everything in the bucket and you kind of squash everything down and you exclude air so it's different to composting in that you're not using the oxygen to help break things down you're actually um, excluding air and putting the lid on tight and letting everything ferment. Mm, fascinating so um, I've seen a couple of Bokashi setups and it sounds like they're better for maybe small um, smaller households like maybe you know, people that have less food waste or, you know, people just living one or two people in a household. So they probably wouldn't be um, able to process large amounts of um, household food waste. Um, or maybe yeah. it just depends on the size of the system you set up, I guess. But um, the ones I've yeah, seen in Bunnings yeah. are quite small. Yeah, yeah. I think if you have a bigger household, you'd probably want a couple of them rather than just one. And um, you are supposed to fill one slowly over time. And then once it gets full, you're supposed to leave it sit for a bit. So it's mm -hmm. good to have a couple of them anyway. But um, if you've got a drill, they're very easy to make yourself and drill a hole and put the little tap in. You've got to make sure to have the tap because you have to drain the liquid off. Um, and that, is that yeah. liquid used? Is that part of the... Um the process where you take that liquid like you would the worm tea or the worm juice or is that something you um, get rid of? Um, you can use it and it's usually quite it's usually quite acidic and um, they actually recommend you can use it as a drain cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. Um, I like this environmental <laughs> drain cleaner. It's perfect. Yeah, but you can also um, dilute it and um, use it as a bit of a fertilizer as well. Mm. Now, being highly acidic, I've seen some like sort of homesteading recipes for weed killer that are basically just, um, you know, Epsom salts and, and vinegar. If it's really acidic, would it be beneficial as like maybe um, a natural weed killer or um, something that you could use to eradicate, um, you know, invasive introduced weeds? Oh, I don't think it would be very effective for that. Um, I think... Better uh, acetic acid is, is still a fairly weak acid, and for weeds, my my preferred technique is boiling water. Actually, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's a good good one. Um, so one of the things I was looking at, you know, courtesy of Costa and his show, <laughs> Gardening Australia, um, was just the benefits of adding compost to. Um, soil that not necessarily poor quality soil but maybe soil that isn't ideal for what you want to grow there so you could have particularly sandy soil or particularly heavy clay soil where you know the sand won't retain water and the clay gets kind of gluggy and heavy and that there's something called um, it's like a test it's called the ball and the sausage test and you actually add compost to these soils so if you're adding it to uh, sand you know you would then try and ball the sand up so if the sand can be made into a ball after you've added the compost then you've actually almost created loam so you're turning your sand into loam and then if you take 
uh, the clay soil and you add the compost, then it's not balling up as much. It's a bit looser. It's aerating. Have you ever tried any tests with that, with your compost? Because you have a mini urban farm, I understand, next to the composter. Oh, yeah. um, uh, We've got a couple of little garden beds next to our Hackett composter. And um, the, the main idea behind them is to show you that if you do add compost to your soils, um, it makes gardening so much easier. Um, so those two little garden beds, they're just planted out mostly with rocket at the moment, which is pretty hardy anyway. But that nobody manages those garden beds. The, all you need to do is put... Um, the compost in the bottom of it and a bit of potting mix on top and then your plants in. And um, the the benefits in terms of retaining moisture and nutrients and having those nutrients be readily available to the plant roots is huge. Um, so the, the difference between, say, just your cheap potting mix on its own and if you cut that half and half with some compost is um, the benefits are really huge and anyone can do kind of a test in a little seed punnet or something and and see just how much more vigour you get out of the plant. I've got to say, like, what I find is the biggest problem of using compost and castings in the garden is that they don't make tomato steaks big enough. It's interesting because we had um, Arian McVie from Canberra Seed Savers on last week and we were talking about that prolific growing of tomatoes in Canberra and because of our extreme climate change we've had that tomato crops are failing, that for the first time ever that tomato yeah. crops haven't been thriving. So maybe you guys have got the solution here that add just add compost, add more compost. Yeah, definitely. I, can, I can honestly yeah. say but it was a bad season for everyone last yeah. year yeah. and this year though. Our but f- did you notice a difference? Like were you heavily compost? that the plants were um, surviving some of the harsh conditions? So if you've got that extreme heat we had in summer, then, of course, the smoke pollution. and Typically, yes. Yeah. Like we, we normally grow about 30 varieties of tomatoes out at our property, and I'll put a handful of castings mm-hmm. under the root ball, and that's enough fertiliser for the whole year. And as I say, wow. we, we get tomato plants to get to four metres. So you've got one handful is one year's worth of fertiliser. For that tomato plant, yeah, oh that's goodness. all you need. Yeah. And that we, can be potted or in the, or in the ground, That's right, right. and we did that as an alternative to using... The liquid, the liquid itself. Yeah. Um, but this season, the smoke that was in the sky just made it awfully difficult. Mm. I don't, I don't know how. It, no matter how good your garden was this year, it was going to be really challenging. Yeah. That's for mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> so something, um, Brooke, you touched on this on a post you put up um, on your social media last night. That was really, really interesting to me. First of all, you brought to the attention that your wonderful husband Scott, who you met in Burlington, Vermont, has built the uh, the compost bins for you guys uh, and also because you were talking about Vermont you mentioned that Vermont's passed this wonderful new law yeah um, yeah so householders um, are no longer allowed to put their food waste in their um, normal rubbish bins um, and I think that's that's something that I would love to see achieved and what capital scraps is trying to just get the message out there that we can do so much better with this. I, I even hate to call it a waste material because it's not. It's it's a really good resource. So it's a repurposed um, material. It's going to be a repurposed material. Yeah, it's, it's feedstock for, that's going to um, improve our soil quality and just make Canberra greener in so many ways. Um, it's funny, I, I always raise a bit of an eyebrow when people ask me, what do you do with all the compost? And 
there is <laughs> there isn't that much left yeah <laughs> yeah it's never hard finding someone who wants to take the compost that you're generating absolutely but um yeah beyond that my my background is also in like um enzymatic degradation of different things and i I still only have a tiny understanding of what's going on inside a compost heap in terms of the um, different bacteria. I think I caught just before Sid saying about a teaspoon of compost having millions of types of bacteria, and that's absolutely true. And um, probably in the last uh, 15 years, there's been there was a real boom in the research into this um, the microbial dynamics and what's going on and their metabolism and the chemistry. And this is what we need to research to find new new medicines and new materials and have what we like to call green chemistry. So we can, um, we can build new consumer products for people to use that have an appropriate life cycle that um, don't hang around like all of our um, petrochemical based stuff does. Yeah. So this is like the biotransformations that you were talking about them yielding new medicines and materials through this research. Yeah. And I think I think I caught that you guys were talking a bit about um, pesticides and and their persistence in the environment as well. And um, that was something I used to help do a little bit of research on on the breakdown of pesticides. So the same bacteria and fungi that are in a compost heap that are breaking down our food stuffs and our apple cores and banana peels, um, they're, they're amazing and they have these amazing abilities to, to produce enzymes and, and have different metabolic pathways to that can help us break down things like pesticides and um, other persistent chemicals that we don't want hanging around. Mm. I guess the other part of that too is that by building up the soil health, it makes plants a lot more resilient where you don't need to use as many, yeah. and particularly insecticides and things. Mm. No, that's brilliant. And, you know, as, as things go on the show, time vanishes at an alarming rate and we're almost up at our time, Brooke. I know it seems like we just got you on the phone here. Um, if people want to get in touch with Capital Scraps and want to become part of your collection program or get more information or I don't know if you run any workshops or any training, is there anything that they can do to get in touch or where should they go to get information? Yes, our website is very easy to remember because we managed to um, get compost.org.au as our website um so head head there and um i've actually got a i'm going to be running a workshop for science week which is in august and it'll be the science of composting so we'll have a look at kind of the fundamental um biochemistry and and how to think about bacteria and the way that they live and um i think it'll be useful for people who want to up their game in terms of their backyard composting if, um, if you understand some of the underlying signs, it should make everything even easier. No, that's brilliant because I was thinking, you know, a lot of people probably, you know, coming out of the COVID wanting to get involved in more gardening stuff. So um, I'm very excited they can participate in that. So, Sid, um, where can they get in touch with you? For, I know you do some trainings and some workshops and they want to become part of the, the whole worm farming culture. Yeah, well, they can in contact me. <laughs> in they can seconds, contact yeah. me through Canberra City Farm. I mean, I'm on Instagram as well, but I've been so slack setting up a website. Right. It's been four years in the making. <laughs> so every time I start to work on it, I get a new client. 
<laughs> so we've been relying on word of mouth, but you know, I can be contacted uh, via email mainly, which is globalwarming at mail.com. Fabulous. Thank you. Well, we're out of time as usual. So I wanted to thank both Sid Riley and Brooke Clinton um, for joining us today to talk about composting. It's a fabulous thing. And please do go to their websites and also to our Facebook page. So you've been listening to Scotty Foster and Suna Richardson on Behind the Lines, X Community Radio, 98.3 FM. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au that's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.